0: Please open it to Acts chapter twenty. Acts chapter twenty is going to be the text for us this morning. Acts chapter twenty verses seventeen to thirty-eight. Acts chapter twenty verses seventeen to thirty-eight. Luke writes. From Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink away from declaring to you anything, that was profitable, and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, bound in spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city saying that bonds and afflictions await me. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure savage wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves men will arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And now I would commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I've coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourself know that these hands minister to my own needs and to the men who were with me. In everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. When he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them. And they began to weep aloud and embrace Paul and repeatedly kissed him, grieving especially over the word which he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they were accompanying him to the ship. This last week, I was listening to an audiobook from This is an old book by C.S. Lewis titled The Abolition of Man. And if you listen to it, it almost sounds as if he's critiquing modern-day higher education. Uh, the reality was that he was actually critiquing, uh, critiquing London's higher education during the time after World War II. And in his book, he talks about how these institutions surprises itself in trying to get people to be emotional, to focus on what they feel as opposed to objective reality. Lewis goes on to describe how we as a a society need an objective value system to see the glorious things because if we do not, then the society will fall. Individuals will will become so disillusioned that they give up. There's no will or motivation to live and he gives this example of a soldier, a soldier that is guarding their post. and He's there um, late hours into night guarding and watching and, mat- and patrolling, not because he feels like he needs to be there, not because he feels like he needs to stay up late in the night, because feelings does not motivate or inspire courage. Rather, a soldier is faithful at guarding his post it's because he has an objective value system that is worth living for, that is worth dying for. He sees the glorious things, and he wants to live for those things. He's willing to fight. He thinks beyond what he feels. He thinks back to his family that's at home, and he's thinking back about the city, the community, the values. It is only when a per- soldier has that mindset, that objective value system, that's what's going to motivate a soldier to continue to, to stay faithful at their task. Because it's this objective value that inspires us. And it's something worth living and worth dying for. And although Lewis in this book is not speaking in terms of pastoral ministry, we can naturally draw certain principles from this book and and connect it to how we live life, particularly in Christian ministry. We too need an objective value system that helps us see the greater purpose, the glorious purpose that should motivate us to continue to serve the Lord. Any and every ministry that we get to be part of, we should know that we're part of something bigger, that there is a greater story at play. This greater glorious gospel purpose for us as Christians is to make Christ known. The objective value system that we have is is that we are here to make the name of Jesus Christ known throughout the world. Whether it's encouraging people in the church to be more like Christ, or trying to win non-believers to to turn from their sins to, to follow Christ, and then turn to looking like Christ, whatever it may be, that is why we do what we do. We want the name of Christ to be made known. Now, throughout this entire sermon, I'm going to use the word ministry and service in synonymous ways, because I do believe that they are similar. You know, sometimes when you talk to people, they say, I'm ministering to my sick parents who's a non-believer, or I'm serving my brothers and sisters in the church. So I'm going to use these two words interchangeably to describe the same thing, that anything that you're doing in the name of God to either build up people to look more like Christ or to evangelize to someone in hopes that they will one day look like Christ. Whatever it may be, that's ministry, and that's also service. We are currently going through a little mini-series about the values of SF Bible, the values that SF Bible needs in order for us to think about life in this church. Pastor Henry, two weeks ago, talked about from Acts chapter 2, verses 37 to 41, about how Christians are called to make disciples of all nations. That we go and we testify to the world that the only one under heaven that can save us, that can rescue us from our sin, is Jesus Christ. And we call them to repentance and then baptizing them for the forgiveness of their sin. Last week, Pastor Henry also talked about how we are a church that's supposed to train people and whether they go somewhere else or they stay here, we train people. This is a training center. And he, he, he taught from Acts chapter 13, verses 1 to 5, and how people are here for a season, they learn about God's word, and if it's by God's will that they go elsewhere, that's perfectly fine. God is one who moves people from place to place for his divine purposes. And today we're going to learn about Christ and the servant. What does it mean to serve other people? I just want to give a kind of a background summary of the book of Acts to get us our minds focused on the text that we have this morning. If you'd like, you can join me as well. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 is really the key verse of this entire book. It tells us that, uh, that the Holy Spirit will come upon us and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in, in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. The title, Acts, seems somewhat misleading because we think this is the Acts of the Apostle. But really, this should be titled the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Because when Christ ascended, the Holy Spirit enters into the life of these new covenant believers and they're supposed to build the church of Christ. The Lord will give them unique abilities to do that. They will heal people. They will raise people up from the dead. And because of that, the growth of the church, thousands and thousands came to saving faith. But just as we know that whenever there's a church growth, there's also a rise in opposition as well. And, and we see that early on in the church it was not an easy life. Acts chapter 7, Stephen defends the, the name of Christ by pointing to the Old Testament. and He was the first martyr. And, and it's amazing how Luke writes this, that right after Stephen dies, Saul comes into pl- the picture. In Acts chapter 8, we see Saul ravaging the church, pulling women and children out of church in hopes that they would be killed, or hopes that they would deny the faith or they would be killed. And then we know in Acts chapter 9 that by God's grace, Paul gets saved. He gets saved, but he tells, uh, he tells us as a reader what Paul is going to be like. This is in chapter 9, verse 15. go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Paul was one, at one point, caused great pain and suffering to the church, and after the Lord converted him and changed him and gave him a new life, he was going to be at that end of the suffering he was going to suffer for the name of God, and in doing so, the world would know the name of Christ. When we get to, we started slowly seeing how Paul is used by the Lord. turn over if you, with, if you like to Acts chapter 13. Paul here is ministering and witnessing the Gentiles, and he's trying to convince them of the truthfulness of Scripture in chapter 13, verse 47. Paul writes, For so the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as the light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. Now, some of your Bibles, you can see that it's all in caps. And the reason why that is, is to let you know that this is a citation of the Old Testament. He's making reference to something that was said before. And this reference here goes all the way back to Isaiah chapter 42, verse 6. And in Isaiah 42, verse 6, it talks about the suffering servant. Throughout the book of Isaiah, there's at least four suffering servant songs. Isaiah 42, Isaiah 49, Isaiah 52, and Isaiah 53. In all four of these places, they, the, the, Isaiah is, is letting us know that this coming Messiah, he is going to suffer. And when he suffers, people are going to know the one true God through the suffering servant. So Paul here is pulling on this theology that's supposed to tie to the Messiah onto himself. But why did Paul do this? Why did Paul use a message that's supposed to describe the suffering Savior and attributing to himself? Now argue not just to himself, but to all Christians throughout time. He's saying that his suffering will be similar to Christ, but his suffering won't be... Exactly like Christ. Because when Christ suffered, he suffered, for the, uh, he suffered the wrath of God because of the sin of the world. But Paul's suffering is supposed, is supposed to declare that the Savior has suffered on our behalf. So there are things that, there's, a, there's some discontinuity between Paul's suffering and Jesus' suffering, but there is a continuity in the sense that every believer who want to represent Christ well is going to suffer. How do I know that? Because in verse 47, Paul says, For so the Lord commanded us. He's not only speaking about himself, which is supposed, he's an apostle, but he's also speaking about Barnabas here. Barnabas was a mature saint in the church, and he and Paul are both under this theology that we call suffering servants. They know that they're supposed to suffer in the name of the Lord, and in doing so, they represent Christ, and people come to saving faith because of it. And right after chapter 13, when chapter 14, Paul gets stoned. Rocks were being thrown at him to the point where people thought that he died. They dragged his body out. Chapter 14, verse 19, it says, But the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, And having won over the crowd, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. But while the disciples stood around him, he got up and entered the city. That's pain. That's suffering. Paul was willing to go and do hard things for God because he has an objective value system. He understood what was important. He understood God's glorious gospel plan. Now, What about us? Do we know God's glorious gospel plan? Because it is God's plan for us to make his name known, and do we have the desire to make his name known no matter the cost? We have a responsibility as Christians to be faithful servants because we want Christ's name to be known, both inside and outside the church. We want to serve in such a way that shows and demonstrate Christ Jesus and to make Christ known throughout the known world. The faithful servant should know this grand gospel, this glorious gospel plan. And if you do know this, then you'll minister well. Paul here, jumping, let's jump back to chapter 20. Paul in chapter 20 gives us a template of what his life is like. It's because he understands God's glorious gospel plan that he's willing to go all out for the Lord. If we have this God's glorious gospel plan in our lives as well, in our own hearts, then our lives should look like this, which is going to be the outline for us this morning. If we have God's glorious gospel plan in mind or in our hearts, then this is what our lives should look like. The first point this morning is this, that our lives are not our own that our lives are not our own. Look at verse 17. From Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to him, You yourself know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plot of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, and teaching you publicly and from house to house. Paul here is not bragging about what he was doing. He's just reviewing all that he's done for the, for the Ephesian elders. He was with them. And if you can imagine just being with anyone for a long amount of time, you'll see their flaws. you see the areas where there are shortcomings in their lives. And Paul was ministering to them. He taught them truth to the point where there were tears involved. It's said in extra biblical sources that uh, Paul's life, his teaching ministry, would start around 11 a.m. and it'll go all the way to around 4 p.m. every single day. And he would go to the synagogues and, and, and try to win the Jews over. He'll go into the, the, si- the city center area where, where Gentiles will populate and he'll try to convince them of the truthfulness of the scriptures. He had both a private and public ministry. He, had, he was visible in public, and he also did visitations at people's homes. He was an evangelist, but he was also an apologist. He's trying to win people to Christ as well as defend the faith. Verse 21, um, solemnly testified to both the Jews and the Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, bound in spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testified to me in every city saying that bonds and afflictions await me. The only thing he knows is that he's going to suffer. This is not new for Paul. As we said all the way back in his conversion, he knew that it was going to be a very difficult life, but it's worth it because he understands that his life is not his own, that he's been ransomed from from the bondage of sin, and now his master is Jesus Christ, and he will go wherever God wants him to go. He'll minister to whoever God wants him to minister to. And I think verse 24 is key. If you have, if you underline your Bibles, this is one of those verses that you might want to consider underlining. Because Paul says, but I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly <laughs> of the gospel of the grace of God. See, this is key. If you break open Paul's chest and look into his heart, you'll see that it beats the gospel. It's it's the same heart that God has for the loss. He wants to win people by any means, even if it means his discomfort, even if it means that he suffers for it. He knows that his life is not his own. Our lives are supposed to be like a compass to point to the North Pole that is Christ Jesus, we're just an instrument in the hands of the Lord. He knows that his life doesn't belong to him. And we, and we should be willing to give up our lives because, we have e- because God has given us eternal life. Our lifestyle should be that of self-sacrifice. What keeps us from quitting ministry or, or, or being discouraged when we're suffering in ministry is remembering that we do not belong to ourselves, that we belong to the Lord, all ministries will have moments of difficulty, will moments of hardship, and it's worth it because we know that God is going to be made known through this. And we embrace this reality. Suffering for Christ should not be new for the Christian. Jesus said that if you want to be his disciples, you need to deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. And we understand that when it comes to salvation, that we're willing to give up everything to follow Christ, even if it means suffering. Yet when we are actually suffering, it's so easy for us to just let go of the cross, to not fix our minds on Christ Jesus. What will rejuvenate our resolve to serve is to remember God's glorious gospel purpose. What makes a person faithful to the Lord is not that they, it, 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 what makes a person faithful to the Lord is that they need to keep looking to Christ. And the inverse is also true, that the moments in ministry becomes difficult, the moment we want to quit is probably because we focus less on who Christ is and more about what we are going through. But we know that in Christ's ministry, his ministry was not easy as well. People that he taught forgot what he taught. People that he ministered to and loved abandoned him. If it happened to our Lord Jesus Christ, why would we expect our ministry in this life to be any easier why should we expect to be treated any better when the perfect son of god is treated so poorly we forget that we were bought with a price and our lives need to be for christ and to make our lives and our lives need to look more like christ every single day you will need to deny yourself daily if we forget god's glorious gospel planned, and purposed to make himself known, then any and every ministry will be centered around us. We will make things about us. We'll make this ministry about the efforts that I put in, the, uh, the, my talents, my resources, my time, my efforts. And really, that's this form of idolatry because you are not made to be made known throughout the world. Rather, it is supposed to be Christ. As Christians, our Lives here are supposed to represent Christ because we know that our lives are not our own. Not only does the person who have God's glorious gospel purpose in mind will know that their lives are not their own, but our second point is that if we have this glorious gospel purpose in mind, then our lives are to build others up. Our lives are to build other people up. Verse 25 to 32. Verse 25, and now behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I do not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Building off the last point, if we have God's glorious gospel purpose in our lives, we will model after our Savior, the perfect suffering servant He gave up his life to build up people. This section gives a summary of what he was like to the Ephesian elders. He ministered to them. He taught them. He was with them day and night, teaching them God's word. It says in verse 26 that he is innocent of the blood of all men. He did not shrink away. This idea of shrinking away is this idea of cowering or running away or going AWOL. He did not there was no theological idea or difficult text that he shied away from. There was no moral issue that he did not have a Bible answer to. He did not shy away from teaching and preaching the truth. It is because of that, he says, I am innocent of the blood of all men. This is a reference all the way back to Isaiah, Ezekiel 33 about the watchman. In Ezekiel 33, God tells Ezekiel that the prophet... It's like a watchman. There's will supposed be on the tower, and when they see the enemies come, there's are supposed to blow on this horn. And when they blow on the horn, and the people chose not to listen to him, then the blood is not in his hand. But if he sees the uh, people, that, uh, that the enemy's coming, he blows on the horn, and he doesn't blow on the horn, then everyone that dies, their blood is on the hand of this watchman. And Paul is saying that he is innocent of the blood of all men, that is to say that he warned them everything God's Word has to say. He warned them about judgment. He, he, he preached on the holiness of God, the sinfulness of man. He warned people with God's Word and he taught them. He was faithful to the point where his conscience is completely clear. The Lord is moving Paul and Paul's conscience is clear that everything, all the time that he had with them, he taught them everything that he was asked to teach. He didn't add, he didn't subtract, he didn't modify God's Word. And we need to teach God's Word because it is only God's Word that builds people up. Paul understood this principle, that you need God's Word to build people up. I know in our church, sometimes we don't like to confront people when they're in sin because we don't want to be viewed as someone that's like a tyrant or someone that's bossy or a legalist. But really, when someone is pointing out an area of your life, and they can say, here's a book, chapter, and verse on how your life does not match up to Scripture, you need to cherish those friends. As uncomfortable as that conversation may be, as difficult as it is, you have to understand that if you love God, if you want what's best for your brothers and sisters in the church, you're willing to confront them on their sin because their lives do not match up what God expects. And this is how we fulfill God's glorious purpose in the church. When we we see someone living in sin, we're calling them to repentance because they're living unbecomingly and they don't look like Christ in the way that they live in this particular area. So we call them to repentance. We build them up with the word of God. Verse 28. Verse 28 to 31, this is Paul's warning to the elders here to guard themselves, to guard the flock And what is fascinating to note here, and this is a familiar passage to a lot of us, I'm sure, they say that I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. He's implying here that it's possible that even when the elders that he's trained up the person they evangelized to, the person that they, uh, they, they shepherd and taught, and the person eventually he ordained as elders in this church, even one of them can turn against the church. He said that he did this for three years, day and night. Every moment that he had, he used to build up the church with God's word. That's why in Ephesians, uh, he tells the Ephesian uh, Christians there to redeem the time for the days are evil. And we have to look at this, and at least when I looked at it, I was super convicted when I realized I don't live up to this. I don't spend day and night ministering to the people all the time. We all don't live up. But by God's grace, we're still able to have opportunity to build one another up with the word of God. Verse 32, is, says, and now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Paul is passing the baton to these elders. Paul's ministry, whether it's public or private, was designed to build up the church or build up individual Christians. He labored for the church with truth to build them up for the gospel. This word tears is used three times here in this section verse in chapter 20, verse 19, verse 31, and later in verse 37 when they were weeping because Paul was leaving. But this idea of tears implies that when he was trying to shepherd them, that they didn't always listen to Paul right away. That Paul was pleading with them. That Paul was, when he was begging them and trying to show them from Scripture, that these individuals at some point in the past did not listen. And that broke Paul. How did Paul choose not to just leave the church or move away and start another church plant, which is often so tempting to do when ministry gets difficult, when relationships strain, it is very easy for us to just go somewhere else. What keeps Paul from leaving? I think it's because he understands God's gospel purposes. He understands that he's there because God wants them there to minister to these people, to build them up in the faith. They're supposed to uh, be sanctified by the Word of God. And Paul was doing that day in and day out, every single day, to try to win people to Christ and to build them up in the faith. Eventually, we see that just these elders, they were built up to mature faith, their thought life. Their lifestyle, their worldview, everything changed, and it took time for it to get there. Paul left behind to, those, to these Ephesian elders as his successors, the sacred deposit of truth. He used all that he had, all the time he had with the church to strengthen their faith, to build them up. Building up the church with God's word is what we are meant to do. The reason why you come on Sunday the reason why you go to Sunday school, the reason why you learn about God's Word is that one day God will use it to grow you as well as to grow other people in the church. The more mature you are in the faith, the more you'll look like Jesus Christ. And that's God's glorious purpose, to make himself known throughout the world. And it begins with the church. The people in the church should look the most like Christ and relative to the dark world that's outside of the wall here. We're called to build one another up to look more like Jesus Christ. We're willing to put in the work to study God's Word so that we can preach or teach or counsel people. We hope that people will get it. And when they do, we praise the Lord and we look back at our lives and say, that was totally worth it. There are going to be times where it's difficult to continue building up others in the church. You could be in a prayer meeting And you can have at one point in your life, in your prayer ministry, a lot of people in your church kitchen, or not in the church, in your house kitchen, and you're praying or you're ministering to people, and then as time progresses, it seems like the numbers are dwindling, and you notice that in your prayer meeting, there's only five of you there. And of the five, four of those people live there, so it's really just one new person. And you think to yourself, is it even worth it anymore? Is it worth it to pray when there aren't that many people interested in prayer? The answer is it is worth it. We need to remember that we get to pray. We get to serve the church in this way, to intercede for people and ask the Lord to build up the body of Christ. When we think about evangelism, and we're going from door to door and we're witnessing to our neighbors, and people are just shutting the door on us, they're insulting us, they're making life difficult for us to be Christians. And you might think to yourself, I'm done. Okay, Jesus said, just dust your sandals off. God destroyed this place like you did Sodom. Go for it. You may want to quit, and you may think to yourself, it's not worth it. It's not even worth it anymore. But it is. It is worth it. We get to be heralds of God's word and be part of God's saving plan to build the church. God builds the church by rescuing sinners. Or you may be doing a visitation, and you might be the only one helping this one dear saint. You may feel that it's unfair that you're the only one driving this person, the only one caring for this one person, and no one else in the church is helping you. Is it even worth it to spend so much time on one saint? And the answer is, it is worth it. We get to build up this one saint, even if no one else knows about it. We get to build up one another in different ways because God is gracious in our lives. And if we lose sight of God's glorious gospel purpose, we will be discontent and discouraged because the numbers are dwindling or there's no immediate success or that we don't get recognized for our sacrifice. Brothers and sisters, we get to do ministry. We get to build one another up in the faith. God is using you uniquely to build up the church and we get to be a part of that. Ministry is never about ease or ego but it's about making Christ known throughout the world. It's about making people in the church look more like Christ to the best of our ability, to build them up in the faith. If you, not only that, not only if you have this gospel, glorious gospel purpose in your mind, not only will you know that your life is not your own and that your life is supposed to build up other people, but third, our lives are used to lift up others' burdens. Our lives are used to lift up others' burdens. Notice verse 33 Paul says that I have coveted no one's silver or clothes or gold. You yourself know that these hands minister to my own needs and to the men who were with me, and everything I showed you. That by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, that he himself said it is better, it is more blessed to give than to receive. See Paul understood that his life is supposed to help other people, is supposed to help lift up other people's burdens, first John chapter three, verse seventeen to eighteen. John writes, but whoever has the world good and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little little children, let us not love with words or with tongue, but indeed, in truth. Paul understood that the people, in the, in the, in the, the Ephesian church at the time, they were not able to support him. Support him, so he worked hard. He was diligent and working hard so that not only is his burden lifted, but he was able to lift up other people's burdens as well. Paul was spent and he was exhausted so that other people's needs were met. He didn't want to be a burden to others, but rather he wanted to lift up others' burdens. I do want to say a little caveat here that Paul was not proud to not receive help. In fact, in his other writings in the epistles, there are moments where he's asking for help. Uh, He would, if you read the book of Philippians um, or in Second Timothy, he's asking for help. There was a burden in his heart, or some practical need, and he would ask the church for help. But there are times when he understands that to help the church, he would he's willing to forego being paid so that the people can not feel the burden. So I say that because it's very easy for us to try to be like Paul in this context, saying, well, I don't want to be a burden to anyone. That's why I'm never going to ask anyone in church for help. In Chinese, there's this word, ma fan, which is, some of you guys know what that means. It means, like, I don't want to be an annoyance to you. I don't don't want to be a burden to you. But you understand that that's actually not how Christians are supposed to think. In fact, it's, it's very pride, prideful for you to think that way. You're depriving the opportunity for the body of Christ to come alongside you to minister to you. If you choose not to let your needs be known in the context of the church, how can people come and minister to your needs? You're failing to give opportunity to really, not really for the people to serve, necessarily, although that's true, but you're, giving, you're failing to see the opportunity how God will care for you. God will providentially provide people in the church to meet your needs. And when you see and experience what it's like to see all of these different people come and meet your needs, you realize how much God loves you. This is why we should let our needs be known to one another so we can lift up one another's burdens. Now, Going back to text here, in this context, Paul doesn't need anything, or he, if he has needs, he's willing to work at it so that he's able to support himself and those around him. We need to ask ourselves, do we have the similar attitude to expend or, and to exhaust ourselves for the sake of not being a burden to those around you? Sometimes it does get difficult to help lift up other people's burdens. Christ spent his entire earthly ministry caring for other people. You only see him rest, and he's either that, or he's praying, or he's helping someone, or he's teaching someone. He was building up other people because that was what he cares most about. First Peter chapter five verse seven tells us to cast our burdens before the Lord because He cares for us. We look like Christ when we're able to labor to help others in their needs when we see the burdens of other people this is how we fulfill god's glorious gospel purpose we look like christ when we're willing to drive over to to their home and give them food we look like christ when we're willing to give them a call and to pray with them over the phone we look like christ when a person is struggling financially and we're willing to give them money we look like christ when we are willing to sacrifice for others in the church. The point is that you give your life away because that is what our Savior did. Not only does the person who have a glorious gospel purpose know that their life is not their own and that their lives are supposed to build other people up and also to use their life to lift other people's burdens, but lastly, our lives are in the hands of God. If you have this gospel glorious gospel purpose in your mind that you understand that your, your life is in the hand of God. Look at verse 36 to 38. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And they began to weep aloud and embrace Paul and repeatedly kissed him, grieving especially over the word which he had spoken that they would not see his face again And they were accompanying him to the ship. This functions as kind of like an epilogue of his little speech. He's telling them that you men who I evangelized to, who I trained, who I have ordained as elders in this church, it is time for me to go. And they pray with him, and they say goodbye, and it is a bittersweet moment. They know that they'll never see Paul again in this life, and I would argue that the next time they see him will be in glory there is a reality that for all of us, every single ministry is time sensitive and also every ministry has an expiration date. We can only serve as long as God allows us to serve. God can move you to another place or God can move you into glory. Both are ultimately not in our control. Yet the time that we have left here, let's serve and minister knowing that it will all end one day when we grasp the reality that our life is short and in God's hands, it should radically change our perspective on life and ministry. We should be willing to wake up early to go to church or we should be willing to stay up late to counsel someone. We should be willing to go the extra mile because you know that you're going to have to give an account to the Lord and how you use every moment of your life. Don't be the person that when you're in front of God and you look back at your life that you wish you did something different. Don't wish that you spend more time praying instead of watching the 49ers. Don't think that, don't look back at your life and think, I wish I spent more time evangelizing to people instead of playing video games. Don't look back at your life and wish that you ministered more instead of uh, going on YouTube. Don't wish that you hoarded all this wealth and said you should, that instead, of saying, instead of looking back and wishing that you gave it more away. Don't go into eternity wishing that you did more for the Lord. If you have God's glorious gospel purpose in mind, you will not waste the life that God has given you. You will do all that you can to use the life that you have been given to make Christ's name be made known in your life Think about this last week. How did you use your time? And can you say with a clear conscience that I use every moment that I had to advance God's glorious purpose, to make Christ known, whether that is caring for people in the church or trying to evangelize to those that are outside the church. Knowing that our time is in God's hand ought to move us to be more precise about how we use the time that God has given us, whether it is in this church or on this earth. When we look at this life of Paul here, you realize that he's, although he's never met Jesus or he was not there during Christ's earthly ministry, his life was patterned after the Lord. Is this not how our Savior lived? He Jesus knew God's glorious gospel plan, and he used his entire life to rescue a people for himself, those who believe in him. He came to rescue the souls of men. Jesus is our model in order to fulfill God's glorious gospel plan. Jesus knew that his life was not his own. In Mark chapter 10, verse 45, it says that Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life for a ransom for many. He understood that his life is a, is a life-giving life, that he, he did not live for just his own pleasure or purpose. He lived for the glory of God. He wanted God's name to be made known. He wanted the people to repent so they could be with him in all eternity. Jesus understood as well that he was there to build people up through his teaching and preaching ministry, through the miracles Everything that he did, he was trying to prepare the apostles and disciples, try to build them up so that they can live life without him. And not only that, but he even promised that there was going to be the helper, the Holy Spirit that will continue to dwell in them and build them up after he's gone. Jesus lifted the burdens of those around him by his miracles, whether it's resurrection, whether it's healing their health, but the apex of which is that he was lifted upon the cross so that he can lift the burden of sin off our, off our necks. It is because of what Christ has done, his diligence, his work as a great high priest, that he finished his work and now he sits on the right hand of God. Jesus knows as well that his time on earth was limited. He knew when the end was going to come uh, from the beginning. Everything that happened happened according to the foreknowledge of God. He lived a perfect life, and not just in the sense of a moral life, although that is true, but what made his life perfect was that he did not waste a single moment. And when we remember God's glorious gospel plan, and we look to Jesus as the perfect example, it should radically change the way that we think about ministry. It should propel us to work harder and do more for the glory of God, because we want others to know Jesus Christ we want others to see a little bit of what our Savior is like in the way that we live. And I just sometimes wonder how this church, what this church would be like if we all had that mentality. And not to say that you guys are not faithful in what you're doing. I'm just saying if we all did a little bit more, would Christ's name be made known more in the city? I think so. If we're willing to turn away from the... the the vanity and the things of this world, the vain things of this world, I trust that we can make God known even more in this city. And then, yes, all of us, if we look at these four points, we realize that we all fall short. But this is where God is so gracious that His new mercy is every single day. And if there's areas in your life where you see a shortcoming that you can spend your time better, ask God for the grace to be able to use you in a way that would proclaim and maximize his name on this earth. And I trust that as you do these things, if you understand God's gospel, gospel, glorious, glorious gospel plan, you will fulfill all four of these things so that God's name will be made known throughout the ends of the earth. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, thank you for your word. I pray, Lord, that you can humble us, allow us to look back and look forward to our the life that you've given us, knowing that our time here on earth is short. Lord, there is a lot to do for your kingdom. I pray that you can give us diligence, allow us to be disciplined as well so that we can glorify you. Help us uh, make your name be known throughout the world. It is your son's name, I pray. Amen.